Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. He has made this. How many book interviews have you done? I mean, are you up to 142 yet? (laughs) But I've done plenty. The book has been out, and he has done plenty of uh, interviews. It has launched to the top of the New York uh, Times bestseller list, Bill Gates helping that out, uh, saying that this provides guidance. I want to go to Mr. Gates here in a moment. Principles, Ray Dalio, of course, with Bridgewater, and yes, we'll talk about the investment environment, alternative assets, and that uh, in a moment. Congratulations, uh, Ray. And what I want to know, and you finished strong in your book, with your final chapter, which is the great mystery here. And for heaven's sake, don't overlook governance. Can you take the principles of an entrepreneurial guy like you and can you bring them over to big corporations like Microsoft? Uh, Any organization can determine how the people in the organization are going to deal with each other, right? I mean, I think that that's the most important thing. Write down your principles, which are basically the recipes for success, and agree on them so that you can have an idea meritocracy. What I'm arguing is that an idea meritocracy is the best way to have an organization. And I learned that in the markets. Because in order to be successful in the markets, I know that I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. I I learned humility. Exactly. And what I wanted to do is to have the best independent thinkers, people who will disagree with me and know how to reach agreement. So I need to have the rules of the game clear so we could have that independent thinking. So you and Dom Barton of McKinsey go into a given big uh, blue chip company. Let's pick on Mr. Diamond. And I guess he liked your book too. Jamie Diamond (laughs) and J.P. Morgan. You guys go into J.P. Morgan. Are you going to give everybody at J.P. Morgan an iPad and have them judge each meeting? No, no. I I mean, if I'm with Michael Feroli, David Gura, I'm going to be like, Feroli, you were terrible there on potential GDP. I think the basic question is whether you're going to have an idea of meritocracy. Forget the iPad thing. Forget any of the tools thing. Right. The question is, if you and I were going to have a partnership, how are we going to be with each other? Right. You better write down the rules. And I'm saying that the better way to do it is to have an idea of meritocracy. And what that means is, how do you know, if there's a disagreement, how do you know whether you're right or wrong? And how do you get to the better right. answer than you could have individually, right? Yeah. So that's a fundamental notion. And if you, ex- look, there are two types of systems you ordinarily can have. Like the uh, the autocracy where the boss is always right, and then you're going to dictate it, and everybody walks around thinking whatever they right. think, or you're going to have um, well, a, a democracy. You can't have a just a second. You can't have a democracy where a one man, one vote is. So how do you get through okay. a, a disagreement intelligence? Okay, we've got radical transparency here, too. David Gurr and I are, are not on speaking <laughs> no, terms. Not. David, jump in here. Uh, Ray, you emphasized several times in the book the need to, to, to write things down, to think about this, to be self-aware of one's own principles, and you write about how you wish uh, you could look back at other uh, leaders and business and, and, and economics and government and get their sense of principles. How do you get that kind of self-awareness or how do you begin to think about things in, in this sort of way? Well, it, it, I could describe how I got it. I, I wrote down every time I made a decision, I wrote down the reason I made the decision. I closed the trade and I reflected on it. And then I began to see that if I could take those criteria, I could test how they would have performed in the past. That opened my eyes. Then I began to have a discussions with other people about the people I work with on what are our criteria, not just what is our decision. And then mm-hmm. I, when I found that we could agree on the criteria, I found that we could put them into algorithms and we could take those algorithms and then have the computer make decisions in parallel with us. 
And that was mind-blowing, right. right? So if you don't know your criteria for making decisions and you don't have it written down and you have it clear, you're just going to walk into the snowstorm every day and you're going to see this blizzard of stuff coming at you and you won't know how to deal with it. If you have a game plan and you start to realize that everything that comes at you is another one of those, in other words, it happens over and over again, mm. and what's your game plan? Those are principles right. and that's powerful. How did you come to, to the awareness that these could be things for self-improvement, they could be things that define how you live your life personally? and in business, uh, and yet they could also be transferred to the company that you're running, that they were more universally applicable than you might have thought at the beginning. Be clear on your criteria, uh-huh. right? Be clear on your criteria. If you're cr- clear on your criteria, you write down your recipes. Not only do you know them, and they can be converted into algorithms, or you're clear with each other on how to behave, and when something comes along, you're strategic, and you're not just in the blizzard. That is what I'm passing along. Mm-hmm. In other words, whatever success I had in life right. has not been due to me, okay? It's been due to the principles okay. that are in that book. One more question on principles and I wanna move on. I wanna know what's in this for the kid walking into Long Island University. He's 17, he's 18, he grew up in Queens with a wonderfully gifted jazz musician father. That kid walks in. What does a 17 or 18 year old get out of principles? For me, it was, I didn't have the the approach to principles then, right? I just dove into life, and then I encountered things. And then years later, I discovered that I would write those things down, and that's kind of the magic. And so this is just a cookbook of the principles mm-hmm. that work for me. And forget about me. You, I'm recommending to you, and I'm asking other people. I'm asking, I won't list the people, right. but Bill Gates, Jamie Dimon, <clears throat> people like Mike yeah. Bloomberg, if they wrote down their recipes for success right. of what they did and people could look at them, right. it would be tremendous well, for other people. I'm going to give you major marks for the individual nature of your book. This is a naked book, principles, and the individual treatment of it is first rate. I want to go now to how you apply this over to investments. Once again, we're in a period where your community, the hedge fund community, used to double-digit net returns to clients. It ain't happening. We're in a single digit with even some negative numbers for hedge funds. How long can the community put up with this underperformance before the money starts walking out the door? I I think it's uh, worth taking a second and saying, what is the character of the environment? Mm. Agree. Totally agree. Okay. And then that applies to things. Um, uh, So, first, low volatility of inflation low volatility of economic growth, low volatility of interest rate changes, which means low volatility of markets. Agreed, and on a risk parity strategy, as you uh, invented, it's tough. Uh, no, because our, our, our returns for risk parity this year have been stand, uh, excellent, in, in other words, normal. And that's because the expected return of equities, the actual return of equities, and the actual return of bonds relative to the return of cash in most asset mm-hmm. classes uh, continues to have a premium. The worst asset class you can have is cash. Mm-hmm. Okay, And as long as, um, a- and throughout history, the only time that cash hasn't been <clears throat> the right has been the better investment than a diversified portfolio of other assets has been during uh, terrible economic conditions that result in uh, reversals like 2008. So, but let me answer your question in terms of the environment, Mm -hmm. right? By low volatility in terms of growth, and there's reasons for it, low volatility of inflation, 
and low volatility of interest rates, short-term interest mm-hmm. rates, we're in a situation that, generally speaking, we have a low volatile environment and we have a low return environment. We have those things for structural reasons. Okay, then Ray Dalio, if I'm at Verizon walked in the door years ago and put their faith behind you, I got an SPX uh, back 12 months up 19.8%, the Dow up 28%. That's the pressure the people that admire you face. Because I got straight equities, passive fund, Vanguard killing it. How do you respond to that? That. First of all, our clients love us because of the, we separate alpha and beta. This Agreed. is really important. Okay. Just let me explain, let me explain that. that. That's okay. important. We have, we have two types of funds. We have a pure alpha fund in which the individual can take that alpha and attach it to any asset class. Okay. So they can set an equity benchmark and put the alpha on top of that benchmark. In 16 out of the last 16 years, we have had positive alpha. So if they chose an equity benchmark and they put uh, that alpha, they would have had an alpha mm-hmm. uh, that's positive, whatever you attach it right. to. Tell me about beta. So, and beta is the structure, the passive portfolio. What portfolio do you want? So we have an all-weather portfolio, which is right. our risk parity portfolio we described. World acclaimed. Uh, okay. And that is uh, our passive beta. So one can choose what we think is the best beta portfolio. Therefore, there's no mm. alpha. Alpha is the deviation from the benchmark to add more value. Or you, so you can have the best beta portfolio, or you can have the the what we believe is the best alpha portfolio. So because we've performed, right. had positive expected alpha in 16 out of the last right. 16 years, and we've done and had 23 is, out of the last. Now it's less than it has been. Okay. But they don't compare it to equities at the time, right? Because okay. in other words, it's it's above equities is, is the way that they look at it. It's up to them to choose whether they want well, the equity benchmark. If you're just joining us, Ray Dalio with. This. We've got lots more to talk about. We'll continue with Mr. Dalio of Bridgewater. The book is Principles, uh, doing better than. Have you sold the movie rights yet? <laughs> is there going to be a movie? Who's playing no Ray Dalio? No, no Come movie. on, who, no movie. No movie rights. Damn, <laughs> Ray Dalio with us, and we will continue. On Bloomberg Radio, we welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television Worldwide. If I can get the tomb over you, it's like the Old and the New Testament. Principles, <laughs> Ray Dalio, and both David Gurr and I agree there's some huge individual initiative in here to think better and do better uh, over uh, the career of Mr. Dalio, of course, at Bridgewater. Uh, Ray, I want to ask one more financial question here that we've been talking on, and I know David wants to go to so much of what the nation is looking at right now. We see every day Kathy Burton and our team in hedge funds, people returning money from hedge funds. What is? Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to return money to investors because things just don't feel good right now? Anything like that? Uh, we have caps, and we've always had caps, and we've returned money over a long period of time. Yeah. With, within this is the recent underperformance of hedge funds and the pressure to get back. What do you do? Just wait? Do you take vacations waiting to get back to the right non-volatile, excuse me, the right volatile environment? <laughs> um, I I think I explain a little bit about how it works, right? Please. Uh, for us, we separate alpha and beta, right? So there's alpha, which is the value added, we, and that's a pure alpha fund, and then people can attach that to whatever beta they want. So if they say, I want equities, plus your, your alpha and your pure alpha fund, they get the alpha plus whatever the beta is. If they have cash and they compare it with 
um, an equity return, that's not a smart thing to do. So mm-hmm. our institutional clients compare it with the asset class that they put it against. And so because we've added value in 16 right. or the last 16 years and we're adding value, less than we normally do because volatility has been less, but still we're added value, net, net of fees, um, they're getting positive alpha. So they have, in our case, they give us, they tend to give us money whenever there's an opportunity to give us money. Now the question is, what is a hedge fund, right? If a hedge fund is compared against the stock and you're having a cash and you're producing that value added mm-hmm. and you're disappointed, then you're probably naive. If that entity is meant to beat the the equity X markets or something, mm-hmm. then that's the passive. So you have to pick. The investor's got to pick one way or another because when the bear market comes along, how do they deal with the bear market? So it's, it becomes a strategic question. Right. I think the smart investor, um, institutional investors right. are, are ours, know how to separate well, alpha and beta I, and I, make that. I got to make news here this morning. Are you predicting a bear market? It seems like every Friday all the doom and the gloom comes out of higher interest rates, lower stock prices. Can Ray Dalio predict negative 18% in the equity market? Markets? No, we're um, we've been long equity markets, and we're you know um, without getting too much into our positions. Why we don't not? Say, let's get into your, let's get into no, positions. No, uh, well, I can tell you because we don't get into our positions. That's <laughs> okay. the why not. But anyway, I'm saying no. The answer to your question. I mean, eventually it, uh, it comes along, but we're in a different environment now. Here's here's the Please. difference. Okay, and then David, jump in here uh, from, from from. Okay, from 2008. Until 2017, mm-hmm. we were in a certain type of environment. And that environment, it was one in which there was the pushing of interest rates down to the point of creating negative interest rates and with a positive carry mm-hmm. pl- by doing quantitative easing to push money into the system. 2017 is the transition of an ending of all of that all around the world. And we are entering a new era in which there is going to be, and there is the raising of interest rates and the reducing of quantitative easing. That action that they took in that produced significantly bad real interest rates. I mean, the yep. real interest rates today, 10-year on the uh, 10-year um, real interest rates, are about a half a percent. Yeah, next to nothing. Next to nothing. And the break-even inflation rate for 10 years is about 1.8%. So that's those numbers are very low because of, let's call it, repression in order to get the economy to do right. that. We are now in a transition, a whole different environment. That's the equivalent of entering the late stage of the cycle, and that's mm-hmm. the, when there's a tightening. Tightenings become progressively more concerning because as you move along, they're more and more difficult to get perfect. So as we're progressing, we're entering a period of greater risk and the nature of the market. So when you look at the bond market right now, Mm -hmm. there is risk in the bond market. Mm -hmm. There looks to me as a significant amount of risk in the bond market as that. So now let's go to the policies that are behind. Well, let's bring in David. Go to the policies. The good news is Ray Dalio is not on the short list at the Fed. Well, on that note, uh, central bank squarely in focus here. We just heard from the ECB. Uh, We're waiting to hear who the president's going to pick to lead the Fed. Let me ask you a two-part question. How much does personality matter at the Federal Reserve? I look at John Taylor and think, Maybe he's a Ray Dalio kind of guy. He's got rules or principles of his own that he's held throughout his his career. And on that note, what would you say to the next chair of the Fed to what he or she needs to focus on when it comes to the health of the U.S. economy? Ooh, bunch of questions in there. So uh, personality, um, uh, 
Again, I think the real question is principles. If you were to write them down and articulate them and then discuss them through history over a period of time, I think that's a good thing. They also have very different principles, and so such as matters in terms of quantitative easing and also whether it's too tight and too, uh, uh, too loose. So I do think it, possible, it can matter a lot in terms of what the monetary policy is, particularly the notion of about the quantitative easing and whether it's too tight or too easy. It can matter a lot. Um, and then we have the uh, pace at which, from Fed policy, since we're talking about it, the pace at which there's an unwinding of the balance sheet. You know, I look at those numbers, and um, I don't think they're going to be able to continue to that pace because uh, it's equivalent of something like 2.5% of GDP. And if you have that happening at the same time as there's increased budget deficits, we could have a budget deficit increase of another 1.5% of GDP. That's a big number in the supply-demand of bonds. I mean, think about that. Okay, there's going to be that amount of effective selling of credit by the Federal Reserve, a big number. Are you predicting that with the tax reform proposed, as Douglas Holtz-Eakin talks about, we're going out to 5 6 or 7% of deficit to GDP? We're... We will almost certainly have a significant move in, in that direction. So you could even see it in the market action. In other words, on uh, days where it looks like they're making more progress, mm -hmm. the bond market's more inclined to sell off. Days that they're making less progress, the bond market. Because mm -hmm. there's going to be probably a larger deficit, and that means more selling of bonds at the same time as there's more selling of bonds by the Federal Reserve in terms of the balance sheet change. Now, I think they'll be cautious in this, but when you're in this part of the cycle, it's very delicate. And this is not just the Fed. This is what we're, we're, the movement in the ECB is going to be analogous to that. So we're talking mm -hmm. now, today's meeting is what is the pace of doing that, but we know the direction. And if right. you move more, further along, you know the direction. You know the direction in, in Japan a little bit slower. You know the direction in China. As we have the, go from the 19th People's Congress and you go beyond it, mm -hmm. there's going to be more of a tightening of credit. So the complexion of the world that we're in is changing in a profound way. Every decade practically has uh, defining characteristics. You know, the 60s was a period of strong growth, not much inflation. Okay. 70s. This is in the we're going to have a period. We're going to enter a new period that's okay. going to be quite different I, I than got, the one that we've been I in. i got eight ways to go here. We're running out of time because your answers are too long. No, no, got to no, work no. on that. you got to go to interview <laughs> camp and do shorter answers. I'm kidding. Ray, we just interviewed Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winner in behavioral economics. In the back of your book, Principles, you have in your bibliography the giant, Mr. Kahneman of Princeton, thinking fast, thinking slow. What have you learned from the behavioral economists that you brought over to your book, Principles? I learned, I learned that there are two yous in everybody, right? There's the upper level thoughtful um, you that's not emotionally carried away. And there's the lower level you, which is mm -hmm. a part of the brain, the animal brain that has that emotional um, carried away, but also a lot of good things like inspiration and um, intuition come from that. And I've learned that how important it is to go slow and reconcile those two things to, to determine what you want. And that is the exercise. In other words, when I'm in the heat of the moment and I'm dealing with things, and then I instead come out of that heat of the moment and I've slowed down mm -hmm. and I write down my criteria for making decisions and I build a, a decision-making system. So it's like playing poker that I know if I 
operated in this way. I can yeah. know what the results are. I'm in a position that I can execute that, like okay. creating a computer I, chess on. game. Can, That's been great Can for we me. do this for like six hours? I got too many questions to go. I want to talk about Ed Thorpe and Sorry. MIT. There'll be another and, book, and, Tom. There'll, there'll be another, be another book. book. Yeah. When is the next book out? Oh, probably on economic and investment principles, probably okay. a year and a half. Well, so. we wait for the Two. movie. It'll be great. Oh, principles, God. Ray Dalio, thank you uh, so much. Uh, really, really interesting book on the individual moving through uh, life with a lot of lessons learned from Mr. Dalio. He, of course, runs a small uh, investment <laughs> shop up in Connecticut called Bridgewater as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.